Our scripture reading for today is Matthew 5, 1 through 13, 20, 48. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Amen. A couple of things quickly before uh, we begin. First of all, no matter who you are, even if this is your first time here, I really want to ask you to be back next week. Next week is one of my favorite Sundays of the whole year. And if you've been here before, you may know what we do the first Sunday of November. It's my favorite Sunday of the year. So invite your friends, your family, your neighbor, whoever that's got a breath and a pulse next week. And we want you to, to be here with us, we want you to experience that. Normally don't put such an emphasis on one Sunday, but if you're here next week, I think you'll see why. Second, after today, we'll be pushing the pause button here on the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll come back to that and pick it up at the first of the year. Got a few things we need to do between now and the end of the year, starting next week and then throughout November. We'll be looking at a little series called Gratitude. Gratitude, yeah. You don't even know what it's about and you're excited. I love Sabrina. It's called Positivity Strengths Finder right there. I like that. No big campaign we're doing, just a lot of vision and encouragement about where we're doing and what we're becoming together. All right, sermon. If you're new here or you're just joining us on our podcast, you may know that we've been moving through the Gospel of Matthew over the last few months and over the last month in particular, we've been moving backwards through the Sermon on the Mount. Not because we're smarter than Jesus, but because we want to take a look at it in a new light. And after all of that and all you've heard, I hope it's all going to come together for you today as we go all the way back to the beginning in Matthew 5. I'm going to try to pull it all together and give you some keys to understanding the Sermon on the Mount as a whole and what we read, the Beatitudes in particular. So, what should you remember about Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount? Three things I want to show you this morning, why you should love it. Second, I want to show you why you should hate it. And third, why you should love it even more. And yes, I chose those words on purpose. Some of you are already irritated. You told me to hate the Bible today, Morgan. All right. Others of you are fascinated. Hopefully, nobody's bored. It's also a goal here. 
Number one, let's begin to look at why you should love the Sermon on the Mount. You should love it because here in this passage, Jesus has laid out for you in a crystal clear way the kind of beautiful and perfect life you ought to be living. He, the life he's called us to follow as his disciples, as his followers. And you should especially love this part, the Beatitudes, because, again, they describe the perfect life laid out through nine different gospel values. And I'm going to look at those in turn briefly. And yes, you heard right. This point has nine points in it. A record for me, to be sure. Let's go. For a few moments, I'd like for you to imagine... A certain kind of life, a beautiful life, and a beautiful life is, number one, a life that is poor in spirit. What does this mean? I'll spend a little time on this one. A person, a life that's poor in spirit, hear me, doesn't express outrage at every slight. Doesn't express outrage at every slight. In our culture, I'd like to say this, outrage is the enrage. We like to be outraged about stuff, every little slight. Why? Well, the book of James, of all places, can help us because the book of James, James asked the people in the early church, they asked, who is it who's dragging you into court, he asks. Who's suing you? He says, it isn't the poor. Who is it? He says, it's the rich. Why? Because rich people, imagine they have all kind of privileges and rights that are exclusive to them, and they drag others into court to get what they believe they deserve. Now, many of us, we may not, I hope you don't, drag people into a literal court, but we drag people into the court of our opinion and relational scrutiny all the time. Why? Because we're rich in spirit. We believe people owe us perfect treatment, perfect understanding at all times, and when we don't get it, we can gossip, point fingers, accused of bias or mistreatment. We drag people into some kind of court, but Jesus is saying almost counterintuitively, you'll be a happier person, blessed, if you walk around poor in spirit, not looking for, not entertaining every kind of slight. Let me just say, having said that, I'm sure there are points and times where you may have felt slighted by me by a leader here, a pastor here, community group leader here. And for that, I'm sorry. Sorry if I haven't helped you feel heard or seen or known when I haven't gone the extra mile in our relationship. I'm not a perfect leader. But I do know this. When I'm in a good place, and hopefully that's today, (laughs) in a good place, I want to be able to demonstrate a poverty of spirit toward you. Because when I'm in that place, I love this place. See, And do you know the main reason pastors quit, by the way? Not that's anything I'm entertaining today, but the <laughs> pastors quit. If you've never looked at studies on that, it's actually an epidemic. But here's what I believe. I believe at the bottom of a lot of that, it's because pastors, ministers, leaders, expect the people in the church to understand them perfectly. Understand what they're going through. There's a richness in spirit they hang on to that I've hung on to many times. That, that richness of spirit, it makes me defensive. Richness of spirit makes me selfish. Richness of spirit makes me withdraw from people, display a lack of courage when I'm in that place. There have been many times when I have ministered not from a poverty of spirit, from a richness in spirit, and I'm sorry for that. I don't want it to be this way. I don't want to drag you into my inner courtroom. 
right? Judge you for doing something that really only my heavenly father can do for me. That's to make me feel fully seen and fully known. And then when I allow him to do that for me and show me that the power of that hits my heart, guess what I can do now for you? Oh, I can love you right where you are and vice versa. And I don't know exactly your individual place you're coming from today, your individual uh, gender place or ethnic place or age place, but I do know I'd love to hear it. I do, I would. And as I've done this, hopefully done this a handful of times, I've learned a few things. I've learned, among other things, that many of you here are struggling, especially, you know, especially minority women in our culture are struggling today. So you see stuff on the news, you, 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 you feel things, you think about your history, you think about your future, and you're struggling. You think, man, what's it going to be like? I'm sorry for that. I don't know the depth to which you, minority women, or anyone else feels things, but I do know your heavenly father does. And he's made you, and he loves you, he is for you, and so am I, and so are we. And I hope you'll receive, in the spirit of which it's intended, any little bit of poverty of spirit I can give you today. And just hear that I love you, and I'm glad you're here. You make me better. You make us better. Church, can we be poor in spirit toward one another? And not drag each other into the courtrooms of our heart. Jesus says, we'll be happier if we can do that. That's number one. I'll be briefer on the rest. Second, a beautiful life is a life that mourns. See, a life that mourns, hear this, is one that doesn't refuse to carry the pain of others. If you had a tragedy happen to you, something so dark, so difficult, so painful, that everybody, maybe like the life of Job, everybody in your life just walked away and left you all alone. But then someone walked into your life and sat with you, and mourned with you, and held your hand through your tragedy, what would you call that person? Oh, you call them a blessing. See, a blessing. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. Number three, a beautiful life is a life that's meek. Meek. Uh, one commentator I read said this. He, they said, gentleness, or meekness, is the opposite of self-assertiveness, self-interest. It stems from knowing God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all. You know what I thought? I thought, you know what? If I'm not careful, if we're not careful, we today in America especially can become professional life lobbyists. Life lobbyists. You know what a lobbyist is? A lobbyist is someone whose job it is, whole job it is, to be assertive, right? To represent the interests of the one who funds them and advocate for the interests of the one who funds them. And I, I, I know many people who are lobbyists that can do good work, but my one political statement for this season is, I don't think we'd all agree that our current culture of lobbying is working for us. But to be meek in the kingdom of God is to be a different kind of lobbyist. To be meek is to lobby, not for your own interest, but for the interest of another, interest of someone else, besides yourself and the self-funding right you bring in with you. What would you call a person, again, who knew that you weren't looking out that you knew wasn't looking out for their interests, but for yours. Once again, you call that person a blessing. See, blessed are the meek. 
Number four, a beautiful life is a life of right desires. I love this. This is a kind of life that doesn't allow anything besides God and his love to be their primary focus. Uh, You'll notice this verse doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger for more stuff. Blessed are those who hunger for another thing. But blessed are those, he's saying, whose lives are properly, rightly ordered. Those who want the right thing down deep. They just hunger and they thirst and they go after the right thing every time. That's a life of right desires. Number five, a beautiful life is a merciful life. A merciful life is a life that refuses to live in a way that condemns others. And here's how that works one way in this church. Now, people come in all the time, as John alluded to, we're growing, and they ask me all the time, you know what, Morgan, because again, we live in America, internet culture, information overload, they ask, what about that pastor in that other church or city? What about that author or writer or blogger or speaker? Here's my answer. I'm going to go ahead and answer you ahead of time in case you were wondering about that person in the back of your head. I'm going to say this to you because I am right now. Unless it's obvious that that person, uh, or that somehow, hear this, the grand prince of darkness has set up camp inside that person, unless they start turning red and growing horns and cackling maniacally, I'm probably not going to say something about him. You say, well, what about that guy who's watering down the message and not reaching people? I'd say that person who asked that question probably doesn't do any personal evangelism themselves. And they've taken the easy way out by convincing themselves they're doing a better job in God's kingdom by critiquing someone they'll never met, never interact with, never darken the door of their church instead of doing the hard work, real work of evangelism themselves. Now, you say, that wasn't very merciful. (laughs) It's my best Jim Gaffigan right there. There is true. He said, well, I don't like what that person preaches. Great, don't listen to him, right? What about that pastor who cheated on his wife? Sucks to be his wife, right? The struggle's real. We should pray for him. We should pray for him. What about that guy who stole money? Man, glad I'm not in that church. Man, I've been in that church before. It's awful. I got no control over that church. Be honest, I don't have much control here. I had like six announcements, three emails to go get you to do a service project on a Saturday, right? How many of you actually win? It's getting personal. As the great prophet Gandalf said, do not be too eager to deal in unpleasant judgment. Blessed are the merciful. Number six, a beautiful life is a pure life. Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. He insists on absolute moral and sexual purity, integrity in your life. He says, because the fruit that looks like adultery starts out as a small seed, don't even allow a seed of adultery in your life, a seed of lust. Since the fruit that looks like murder starts out as a seed of hate, don't even allow a seed of hate in your life. Uh, Kierkegaard said, purity, integrity of heart, is to will one thing. Oh, can we will one thing? Knowing God, seeing God, loving God. That's purity of heart. That's a pure life. Number seven, a beautiful life is a peacemaking life. A peacemaking life is one that brings people together for the right cause. You say, well, man, well, didn't Jesus bring some kind of division? He did, but why? Oh, so that he could bring the correct parties together 
in the first place, right? Uh, God and you. A peacemaking person, yes, does avoid stirring up unnecessary conflict. But a peacemaking life doesn't necessarily avoid conflict altogether. It's a fine line to walk, right? You see Jesus poking at hard places in his culture about religion or racism or ego. Why? To bring people together. He wasn't just like Heath Ledger's Joker. You've seen that Batman movie, right? The Joker says, I'm like a dog chasing cars, right? I wouldn't know what to do with one if I caught it. It's not Jesus, right? Not walking around randomly, indiscriminately firing stuff off. Like he doesn't know what he's chasing. No, he knows what he's after. Reconciliation of God and man. A peacemaking life. No, you're not going to do drive-by provocations. But neither are you going to avoid getting involved in the first place. By the way, a peacemaking life sounds real nice until you try it. And then when you realize when you're kind of standing in the middle, guess who's getting shot at from both sides? You might be. Number eight, a beautiful life is a persecuted life. A persecuted life is one that's willing to take it on the chin not for being obnoxious, not for being a ridiculous Christian with no cultural sensitivity or insight, but one who's willing to take it on the chin for doing the right thing. Jesus says doing the right thing for the right reason, even though you're persecuted, is its own kind of blessing. Number nine, a beautiful life is a life, though insulted because of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of emphasis today on being as loving as Jesus was. That's a good thing. And the thought sort of goes that if we love like Jesus, people will love us like they loved him. Oh, but wait, I've read the end of the Gospels. If he was so loving and caring, why did they kill him? Oh, they killed him because he claimed to be king. King over the Romans, king over the Jews. Was he being unloving when he said, you know, I'm kind of like the Messiah, king, savior of the whole world guy? Was he unloving? No, he was perfectly loving at every moment. But his love compelled him to tell the truth about who he was. Does your love for Jesus compel you to tell the truth about his claims in the same way his love compelled him to tell you about himself? Is there any kind of Jesus-centered persecution In your life, in my life, tough question. That's the mark of a Christian. Now, imagine this whole kind of a life, a life which has the power and the capacity to overlook offenses, stay steady in the storm, is merciful, refuses condemnation, doesn't refuse to carry people's pain, perfect integrity, makes peace wherever they go. I mean, could you imagine that kind of life? Could you imagine being around that kind of a person? If you are around that kind of a person, that kind of life, it would be like a cold drink of water on a parched throat in a desert life. To see that person in action, uh, it would be like seeing someone who made you want to be, inspired you to live in a greater way. And that's why you should love this Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes in particular. They outlined a life of perfect love, perfect integrity, perfect service and humility toward others. It's majestic. It's sweeping. It's glorious. And that's why you should love it. And number two, it's also why you should hate it. Famous Bible scholar John Stott said there's basically two ways to read the Sermon on the Mount. He said you could read it with what he called foolish optimism the people he called superficial souls 
who just kind of read the Sermon on the Mount and they think, oh yeah, that's some obvious ethical stuff, kind of like every other faith system. Uh, I like to live by that. It's kind of easy stuff. And maybe that's you today, especially if you grew up in some kind of church or faith background. Maybe, maybe you've walked away, but you still say, oh, I like that Sermon on the Mount. Some good ideas that fella gave us, you know, and uh, maybe you're here today, I don't know, because someone, you know, promised you lunch afterward or uh, that you meet someone cute. You're thinking the jury's still out on that one. Don't know about that. But you say, I I like this sermon on the mount. I try to live by this stuff that Jesus says is helpful. But John Stott, he'd say to you, if you're saying, oh, I just really like, I try to live by the sermon on the mount. He said this. He said, the most charitable reaction to such people is to assume they have never read the sermon we got a quote for that. Most charitable reactions assume you've never read the sermon. Why? Because he says a far more normal reaction to the Sermon on the Mount is not one of foolish optimism, but one of hopeless despair. Thank you, John Stott. A lady by the name of Virginia Stem Owens was a professor of literature at Texas A&M down the road. And for one assignment in her class, easy. Go you, all Aggies today. All right. One assignment in her class, she assigned her students to read the Sermon on the Mount, literature. She said, though, when I assigned the students the reading, she said, I expected them to have this passing familiarity with it and their, their papers to have some kind of level of respect for it. But when she got their, their papers back and student after student didn't just dismiss the Sermon on the Mount, but hated it. She said, I, began, I put my pen down. I knew I had a trend. Why, she asked, were students so angry at it? She wrote in this essay. She said, my own introduction to the Sermon on the Mount as a child in Sunday school had been accompanied by pastel poster illustrations of Jesus sitting like a patient Mr. Rogers on a green hillside surrounded by eager pink children. <laughs> it never occurred to me either to be angry or to turn away from such a scene. But she said their students gave her comments like this. One of them wrote, I did not like the essay, quote, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Another student said, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. And she, Virginia Stem Owens went on to say, at this point, I began to be encouraged. There is something exquisitely innocent about not realizing you shouldn't call Jesus stupid. This was the real thing, a pristine response to the gospel unfiltered through a two millennia cultural haze. She concludes this way, I find it strangely heartening that, except for the young man who found the Sermon on the Mount a guide to good manners, the Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears, just as it was in the first century. And she's right. And I was actually reminded of this afresh over the last month as I've been listening to a few of the messages, to Barnabas's message and Brett's message, and I heard those and I thought, man, those are some heavy sermons. Then I heard Carrie last week talking all about sacrificial life and God seeing stuff in secret, and I thought, man, that's really heavy, and I kind of didn't like it all until I thought, you know what? There's nothing wrong with what they're preaching. They're talking about the words of Jesus here, and it hit me again. I don't like the Sermon on the Mount. Not one bit, I guess, to quote, you know, Dr. Seuss there. I don't li- and I don't like this part today. Because the more I've read the Beatitudes, the worse I felt. Because I'm not these words. Dare I say, neither are you. 
And if you're here today and you're offended by my saying, you should maybe consider hating the Sermon on the Mount. It's only because you're caught up in that cultural haze Dr. Owens described. You either haven't read the Sermon on the Mount recently if you say, oh, I love it. Or you've never let the power of it grip your soul and you've never stood underneath its teaching. How about this oft-quoted refrigerator magnet Facebook profile scripture we all know and love? Be perfect. (laughs) As your heavenly Father is perfect. When Jesus says, if your righteousness isn't better than the Pharisees, you don't get into heaven. I mean, are you kidding me? Live a life of perfect poverty in spirit. Not me. Half a time, I feel like Mr. Incredible in a movie, a Pixar film, right? At the beginning, he goes on and says, man, I feel like a maid. You know, I just picked everything up. And then you, you guys keep breaking the world. And I feel like that too, man. I just fixed that person, fixed that person, fixed this thing. And there that thing goes again. And I'm mad. Why? Richness of spirit. I don't have a perfect poverty of spirit. Do I mourn? Let me tell you, I tend to try to move away from people's personal funerals. Mourning's tricky takes a long time. I'm an American. I like it fixed real quick like. I look back at my life. It's been a long trail. Not being really meek. Over competitive. I've been a serial condemner of others. The Sermon on the Mount made me want to vomit up my own character. I said, get it away from me. Oh God, I prayed, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. And until you can say the same thing, Until you can say, oh God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount, you've never felt its power in your own soul. Until you can say, get it away from me. It shows you have only been reading it in the light of how you expect other people to treat you. I guarantee you, we're going through those nine things earlier, you were thinking about this person, or that person, or your husband or your wife, or that person who's going to vote for that candidate. You think, man, they're not meek, they're not humble, they need to be here. Why weren't they here today to be able to hear that? No, why do we pass the buck? Why do we just move away? Man, we just pass the Sermon on the Mount right down the line. We do because we don't want to stand under the weight of it and we look at it like many of us look at the dishes at home. You're just hoping somebody else will do it. (laughs) So yes, Jesus is pushing. He's pressing that scripture on you. But why? Here it is. To press you to see something else In the end, and what I hope today, by God's grace, you'll see now. Number three, why you should love the Sermon on the Mount even more. If you began a moment ago to say, oh Jesus, save me from the Sermon on the Mount, here's why that's a good thing. Because when you do that, you show you are beginning to live out that first beatitude, which Jesus says is the sign. You are on your way into the kingdom of God. Because in that moment, you're saying, I am a spiritually bankrupt person. You're saying you've got an absolute poverty in spirit. You're saying your morality is worthless. You're saying if you scrounged up all your morality scraps and sold them on eBay, they wouldn't even get you something on the dollar menu. See, only a Christian or someone becoming a Christian can say that. Why? Well, we think, you know what, I know I'm not a perfect person, but I'm like a really good person, though, and I do kind of more good than bad as far as I can tell. And if there is a God, he should accept me, not too worried about the afterlife, because I feel like I've lived a pretty good life. But a good life? By whose standards? Sermon on the Mounts? Or yours? My morality is nowhere near this teaching. Well, if I were to make one up, I'd make it real easy. 
you should maybe think about doing something good once in a while. That's what I would write. But what's good after all, right? That's always subjective. One person's good is another person's bad, apart from God's, vice versa. Here's the point. If you, am I, you're not only the one setting up the standard, but then defining what's good, and you're the one who says whether you meet that standard or not, if you're a good person or not, guess who's playing God? You are. I am. And if there's one thing a Christian or someone who's becoming a Christian knows, it's that they are not God. And if you can't say right now, oh, I'm poor in spirit, I'm nothing without the righteousness God provides for me, you're just being mostly, not even just rich in spirit, middle class in spirit, right? More good than bad, right? You're not saying, God, I've got no rights to claim anything apart from what you give me. Listen, church, we can't even live out, man, half of, I mean, we can't even live out Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What about the other three and a half gospels? You're not, I'm not saved, we're not saved by obeying the teaching, but by trusting the teacher. See the difference? You say, how can I be like that? Like here, you can be that like this. Because if you'll notice, there's an interesting word Jesus uses, one word over and over in the passage. What's the word? It's what? Blessed, yeah, some of you caught that. He's getting your attention through this one word to focus your attention somewhere else. Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid wrote a commentary on the Beatitudes called The Hero of Heroes, and he said this. Through the whole Bible, the word blessed means to be favored and envied. People who were blessed were people like David or people like Joshua. People who have God's favor and therefore were envied because they were God's heroes and were emulated. And suddenly, when you get to the Beatitudes, the profile should be that of a hero. Someone we emulate or aspire to be, but this is a strange hero. Poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungering, thirsting, it is strange. Until you realize they are talking about a hero. But before the Beatitudes describe you and me, it describes him. And he's right. He's right. And once you understand that that life of perfect wisdom, perfect love, perfect service, perfect humility was lived by him first, and it's about him before it's ever about you, now you can actually love the Sermon on the Mount even more because you realize that Jesus was the hero of his own sermon. He had an absolute poverty of spirit, didn't he? On the cross, what did he pray? As his rights were being violated, what did he say? Oh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Not, oh, God, retaliate. Get them back. Oh, he mourned, right? He wept over his own city, all the brokenness there wasn't he perfectly merciful toward those who deserve judgment wasn't he pure in heart didn't he will one thing and wasn't he all that he did wasn't he persecuted for it and it was birthed out of knowing the father's heart it was jesus christ was all this and more which shows that before you need him as a teacher you have to have him as a savior in every other faith system you're saved by obeying the commandments, honoring your ancestors, doing the stuff, getting the gold star. And if you don't, it's another life cycle back on the the wheel or not knowing if you're going to paradise or if you're just a church person, it feels like perpetual insecurity and guilt and fear. But you're not saved by the teaching. You're saved by the Savior and putting all your faith and trust in him to know that he lived this out for you in its place. And when you see that and you say, Jesus, save me from your teaching, I love how you live this 
forming in my place, now his power begins to well up you and his grace begins to grow. Now these truths start to come alive on the inside of you. You begin to change and the world changes around you. And now you can look at the Sermon on the Mount and you can love it even more. Though you knew at first it condemned you, now you can embrace it. And now because you love it all the more, you begin to live it all the more. Because Jesus was, is the hero. And isn't this what we all want, church? Isn't this, Jesus, Jesus says, if we'll live, you'll live like this. You'd be like salt. Oh, you're so tasty. People can't get enough. You'd be like a city at night on a hill. Everybody will see. May that be said of us in this place and of our lives together. Let's pray as we close. Lord, we come today in Jesus' name and we thank you for caring enough about us to come in our world and not just teach, but live it out. Not just preach, but live it out. Not just exhort, but live it out. In a way we never could, would, or dream about. And Lord, I'm praying for us this morning that for all of us, as we stand under the, the power of this, Lord, you would both convict us, point us to you, make you fall at your feet, and help us to embrace you all the more.